The Ask Theory podcast shines the spotlight on Pinoy scientists from various scientific disciplines. Listen to some of the country's best scientific minds as they explain what they do in simple terms and share fascinating stories of how they got into science, the incredible things they've learned about the world around us, and so much more. Frederick Delfin leads one of two human population-based genomics projects under a Filipino Genomes Research Program at the DNA Analysis Laboratory of the Natural Sciences Research Institute in UP Diliman. His research focuses on human population genetics, evolutionary genetics, and molecular anthropology. He has a bachelor's degree in biology from the University of the Philippines, Baguio, and a master's degree from the Molecular Biology and Biotechnology Program now the National Institute of Molecular Biology and Biotechnology of UP Diliman. His doctoral fellowship training was through the International Max Planck Research School for Human Origins at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, Leipzig, Germany, and through the Leiden University Medical Center, the Netherlands. So, hello, Sir Frederick, and welcome to the Asteri Podcast. Hello, good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. How <laughs> po? Uh, well, fine as fine can be. <laughs> Is it a busy day for you? Ah, uh, yes, pretty much. Yeah, coming back from the holidays, uh, every and of course from just coming out from a COVID incident. Oh, yeah, catching up with work essentially. Oh man, how how was your COVID experience? This was my second time actually. The first was October 2021. That was weird because I say this is day one. On day three, the respiratory symptoms were gone. Mm. It was like three days and I was healthy. But unfortunately, my wife got the long two weeks effect of that. Now, in no- late November, I had it, but there was no respiratory symptoms. Instead, I think the infection latched onto what we call DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness after a workout. I did not have any respiratory symptoms, but my muscles were aching. And that actually lasted for about a couple of weeks. So it, mm-hmm. it was weird. It was weird. Yeah, I took antivirals imagine. this time and there was some internal bleeding, <laughs> but oh. no respiratory symptoms. <laughs> oh, that's that's a bit freaky. But, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're well enough to be able to, you know, catch up with work, as you said. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so let's start. Let's introduce you to the audience, mainly with the story of how you fell in love with science. I guess perhaps just like any other kid, interest in science fiction was there. Mm-hmm. Again, as a kid, focus on comic book or cartoon characters, especially the ones that were more realistic and made use of science. Uh-huh. Of course, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, apart from just like jumping in a vat of chemicals and you being a superhuman <laughs> later on, but... But yeah, more kind of more like Batman who makes use of technology. Yeah. And even other hobbies, like for example, in the martial arts, there are more scientific martial arts these days that make use of, of simple biomechanics, the proper movement of the body, something to that effect. Mm-hmm. But I guess the turning point for me to have directed myself towards molecular biology, which was my first, let's just say, higher degree, was when I was diagnosed straight after college to have a debilitating condition. If you imagine when you move your muscles, your arms, they get signals from your brain. 
right? Through your nervous system. Now, we have a central nervous system and we have a peripheral nervous system. The peripheral nervous system is the one that makes our arms and legs work. That's the connection there. Now, my peripheral nervous system, the nerves there are dying. So I actually find it difficult to walk. I use what you call knee braces, ankle foot braces. I use a cane. Sometimes I need crutches. And the doctor said it was genetic. They have a name for it. It's charcot marie tooth disease. It's the most common type of this kind of muscular dystrophy. Other people have a hard time picturing it. When they look at me, they ask me if I have polio. But the more popular analogy would probably be Stephen Hawking in his early years of his condition, when he started tripping and couldn't stand straight and whatnot. So having found out that, instead of yeah being sad and all that, I decided to understand it better. So that's why I went to molecular biology and the focus was DNA because it is genetic and it has a genetic basis. A gene, for example, I would joke around, I'm an X-man because I have a mutation in my <laughs> DNA that causes my nerves to degenerate. So yeah. And because of that, yeah, I, I followed through with molecular biology. But then more recently, when I started work here at the Institute, there was something bigger than me that made me focus first on forensics because the, our earlier work was able to, with, with DNA typing technology, you can identify whether a person is guilty or not guilty. And through our earlier work, we actually were able to get out of prison an individual who was in prison for seven years. Wow. And, and through DNA testing we found out that he was not the guilty party. So looking at DNA technology, rather than focusing on my own condition, I saw something that was bigger than me. And so I went for that. But more recently, it's kind of boomeranging, boomeranging back to DNA. I'll use the term variants because it's really popular these days, especially mm -hmm. with COVID. There are variants that we can use to identify individuals, and that's a forensic application. But we do have variants that are related to disease, which actually has boomerang back to my condition that I have a particular variant, which is the cause of my disease. So having gone through the training in Germany and in the Netherlands, I'm kind of like perhaps happy that I brought back the knowledge and that's why we have the Filipino Genomes Research Program today. And it stemmed from that kind of earlier work. And we're striving towards yeah, understanding Filipino DNA, if you will, and not just human DNA, so that we may be able to apply it here locally. Wow. I mean, there <laughs> there's a lot to, to take from that story. I think the most, yeah. like, there are a lot of interesting things about that story from how you got interested in science and how you received news that was not pleasant, but it led you down this unique path. And right. But I think the the thing that really stands out to me was that you were able to get an innocent man out of jail. Yes, because of yes. DNA testing. That's just so fascinating. And that's not something we hear a lot about here in the Philippines. Right. Although, you know, we, we've heard of that happening in other countries because forensic science in other countries, there's a bit more focus on that. There, It's more developed. So right. taking all of that into consideration, if you were to take what you want to do in life and condense it into a single mission statement, what would that be and why? Perhaps it's to understand our DNA, human DNA in particular, because it is our source code, essentially. Some people would call it the building block, but I'd rather consider it as a code, the code of life. 
if we do understand that and we help the laymen, the public, the stakeholders to understand it, then perhaps they'll have better perception and reception. And therefore, we would facilitate the use and application and benefits of studying our DNA here in the Philippines in particular. We hear the term genomics. We've been hearing it recently a lot. And this is not a word that is familiar to the rest of the public. So can you tell us a little bit about exactly what we mean? And you've gone into this a little bit, but why is it an important field of study? Why should the average person care about it? Right. I'll probably start with saying that perhaps a more familiar term is genetics. Mm -hmm. Right. So genetics, before you're studying a particular gene, again, I've been using myself as a as an example of how to explain things, but it's actually more personal when they see me like that. I have a gene and if there's a defect or whatnot, you study that gene and you study its inheritance. Mm. And that gene is just composed of several letters of our DNA. So that's genetics. When you say genomics, you're studying the entire DNA of a person, of a people. So that's 3 billion letters. That's one strand. If you consider the other strand, that's another 3 billion. So you're studying the entire 6 billion array of letters that we have as our source code. And therefore, you're studying different genes. You could study from individual to a population. And since you're looking at the entirety, how it functions in the body, how it actually is influenced by the environment and everything, then you're really looking at the entirety of an individual in a population. It's important because especially today, when most of the studies are European, so when you say you have a disease that has this variant, it may only be applicable to Europeans. So we need to do the same for the Filipinos. We need to study our own genomes to see what the variants, again, that are really operating in our population, it so happens that those variants are related to disease, then we can, this may be simple in terms, but we may be able to find a Filipino-specific medicine for that particular disease. And for even for forensics, as I mentioned earlier, we may find that there are Filipino-specific variants that can help us identify Filipinos. Yeah, so it, it has direct relevance to our own, say, setup here in the Philippines. All right. You mentioned Filipino-specific, so let's focus on that a little bit. Can you tell right. us about the DNA of the Filipino and some of the curious and fascinating things that the ordinary, you know, average person not involved in science should know about it? Okay. Perhaps this is not unique to our population, but our preliminary work has found Of course, that preliminary work involved only a few Filipino groups. Mm. Now, if you group Filipinos according to the Filipinos that are from regional population centers, so city centers, region one, you have a city center in La Union, region two, you have a city center in Tugigarao, and so on and so forth. In Panay, you have another city center. If you sample or look at DNA variants from those Filipinos, they are genetically close. Okay, But if you look at specific Filipino groups like our indigenous peoples, say we've looked at four indigenous people groups in Mindoro, they are genetically distant. So despite being in one small island of Mindoro, they are distant from each other. But if you sample a Filipino in the city center of Region 1 and you sample a Filipino from Mindanao, a Mindanao city center, they are genetically close. 
despite the distance. Oh. So we describe this as a complex structure for the Filipino population. And this has implications in, for example, finding out common medicine or cures for genetic disease. If several Filipino populations are genetically close, then perhaps a genetic remedy to a particular disease could work for all those Filipinos. But yeah. for the four groups in Mindoro that were included in our preliminary work, they may need distinct or different genetic remedies. Okay? Uh -huh. So that's one peculiarity, if you will, for the Filipino population. We have a complex population structure. Now, another one is what we describe as we have, our genetic ancestry is ancient. Mm -hmm. We've observed from this preliminary work that our genetic ancestry is as old as 4,000 to 50,000 years ago. So if our genetic ancestry is that old, that is actually evolutionary time. Enough time for different changes in our DNA that we hope to see in the present. And whether what these variants are, these changes are, we still need to uncover. But the fact is, we have a, an ancient genetic ancestry, and that requires further investigation. Oh, wow. That's, that's really interesting. And lalo na yung, <laughs> the fact that you know, when you take Filipinos from different parts of the Philippines, non-indigenous, mm -hmm. may similarities. No? And yes. am I wrong to say that this is because of yung ancestors natin are shared or the yung mixing ba of races who, you know, yung pinanggalingan natin? Could that be it? Kasi yung indigenous groups ay talagang distinct sila maybe because nandun lang sila sa community sila. Yeah, actually you, you hit it on the head of the nail that there are demographic factors such as migration. Uh -huh. There you have the mixing and you actually have a demographic factor like isolation and that could describe our indigenous peoples. This is amazing because you don't, these are things na parang we just take them as everyday things. Na, yeah, oh, may, may indigenous right. groups type, but we don't really think about the implications of that. And when we do, when we take these into consideration, we can actually benefit from this knowledge. Like you've mentioned, yung specific kinds of treatment that may be necessary for certain groups. But what are some other benefits or advancements that we can enjoy as Filipinos from studying our own genetics? At least for the research field where we're zeroing in, for example, in forensics, we will be able to find Filipino-specific DNA markers that we can use for human identification. Mm -hmm. And because these kits that we use are very expensive and they're very much based, well, they try to be global. It would be nice that we can manufacture our own. And the applications of this are wide and actually more straightforward. As I mentioned earlier, you can exonerate the innocent. Mm -hmm. You can use them to resolve social issues like paternity, inheritance, and we're no stranger to natural calamities, so it can be used for human identification in mass disaster instances. Mm -hmm. But the broader and perhaps more, I guess, direct or relevant to our genome is that we get to understand and uncover the variants that are existing in our population. And these variants could be associated to various disease or conditions, we may be able to come up really with Filipino-specific remedies to our illnesses here in the Philippines. Yeah, and when you mentioned that, actually the first example that came to mind was the X-linked dystonia Parkinsonism. Yes, I'm glad that you mentioned that. I was trying to look for an example. One of the Filipino researchers, Dr. Kotyongko, was actually part of 
the research focusing on extinct dystonia. Mm-hmm. Their work found a region in our DNA, okay, in our genome, that when you compared to other populations abroad, that was the same region that was responsible for X-linked dystonia. Mm-hmm. But when they looked at that particular region, they found variants that are present in a person that has X-linked dystonia, but they also found the same variant in a normal or unafflicted person. Huh. So that suggests that that particular variant may not necessarily be the causal variant for the Filipino population. Uh, okay. So that is why we need to, again, data mine our own genetic variation so that we may be able to confirm. There are other studies like, say, focusing on breast cancer, for instance. Mm-hmm. Dr. Kochonko Dr. de la Paz had earlier studies in breast cancer where they found uh, a few variants or actually limited number of variants that when you compare to, say, European, the European situation, these were the variants that were responsible for breast cancer, but they did not find the same for the Filipino population. So meaning there could be other variants within our population that are responsible for any type of disease for that matter. It's really interesting. And I think I'm jumping a bit ahead, but I I want to ask this now. I can only imagine that, you know, studying these, for example, diseases, major sensitive and lalo na with in the case of XDP, which some have theorized may be linked to the myth of the aswang. Aswang, yes. yes uh, yeah. and, and given that the cultural implications of it, the perceptions of the people in the area, Panay, yes. I can only imagine that it might be a little challenging to find you know, people who are willing to participate in such research projects. So what are some of those challenges that you encounter and how do you resolve those? Primarily, it is perception. Mm. They give the uh, for indigenous peoples at the at the point where you say that you need to request their saliva alone, notwithstanding the DNA that will be extracted from the saliva. They already have apprehensions because part of their culture is that if you give part of your body saliva included, that's kind of taboo. Mm-hmm. But one of the biggest really is perception. What will you be doing with our DNA? Some people still have this idea of cloning. <laughs> that it will yeah. be easy to clone them and whatnot, <laughs> then there could be discrimination. They could be compared to monkeys because of stories of evolution, whatnot. Yeah. So it's still mainly perception. But given a perhaps a new narrative that the entire scientific community is sensitive to date, we start with first and foremost asking them for their help. I'll give a very specific example, mistakes that we don't want to do here in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. It's about researchers in the U.S. and their handling of situations with Native Americans. I don't think it's verbatim, but the thought that came across, or at least what the researchers communicated to the Native Americans was that, give us your DNA and we'll tell you about our history. We'll tell you about your history. That's kind of the message that was yeah. sent across. And the response of the Native Americans was that, we know our history. <laughs> we don't need science to tell us the same or otherwise. Now, development towards, okay, you want to use DNA to make medicine, to make appropriate drugs and whatnot. Then the researchers would say, okay, give us your DNA and we can facilitate look discovery of medicine to aid you in your sicknesses. And because of the previous incident, 
then the Native Americans would say, oh, we've been using medicine that has been passed down through generations from our ancestors. We don't need that. So we want to try to avoid that. And the shock that actually, which is a realistic scenario, here in the Philippines back in 2003, when we were talking to the National Commission on Indigenous Peoples in the Cordilleras, one individual from NCAP said, oh, if we do not give you our saliva, then you don't have a project. Simple as that. And that is true. And that is true. That's why the approach to date is that, okay, we're the scientists. Well, we want to study your DNA so that we can make drugs. We can tell you about your history and whatnot. But you don't want to do that. The first approach is really, we need your help. We need your help because without your DNA, without your DNA represented, we won't be able to understand our DNA as a country. And we won't be able to understand and look for more specific Filipino-specific remedies to disease. And as mentioned earlier in the Estonia example, perhaps we have a different variant here in the Philippines that is responsible for the disease. So that's the first layer. You, we ask for their help. And in helping us, you're not subjects. You are partners. And this is perhaps old science that, okay, they're subjects, research subjects, then we just take your DNA, do whatever we want with it. But they are partners, if possible, really, placed at the center or at the seat of decision-making. Their DNA, their data is still their own, where researchers are just custodians of it. And any use of it, they will know. They will be informed. It's basically their involvement in the research up to the point where when we, of course, it's part publication is part of scientific research. And even before we publish, we make sure that they agree to the output or results of the study. Otherwise, their data would be taken off or there would be no publication. That's how the new narrative in the scientific community to date is being executed. To really make researchers, all members of the research process, collaborators, and especially the partner participants, say, on the same page with the research being conducted, especially so because we have humans involved. If it were it would for bacteria, plants or animals, you just need to get permits. But here, you're talking to people and you're asking for their help, really. In reality, you are asking for their help. And it's really their decision where they, whether they want to help you or not. So that's the more recent approach, really. It's fascinating that you, the approach has evolved this way, na parang scientists have learned from... Mistakes of the past. And dami ko na iisip na reflections on like yung medyo may messianic complex ng konti yung approach na will tell you about ano, or will will provide life-saving yeah. medicine. And a bit of parachute science as well na parang yeah, we'll just, just swoop in, get your stuff and back up and get out. And you know, parang I think it's, it's good that this this is the approach now. But right. I also know that this is just part of the process and that there are many moving parts in right. human genomics research, which I'm really interested to know more about. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about your process for conducting human genomics research and the different parties that are involved. Okay, so perhaps if we look at the research framework, perhaps it's not just unique to human genomics research, but especially for human genomics research, we have, of course, the researchers, the partner participants, partners, they're the longer subjects. Of course, the funder who gave you the money. And we have collaborators. And more recently, because we need that oversight, research ethics committees that make sure that our research is ethical. You have all of these that we hope 
communicate with each other and are on the same page. Of course, the first part is the proposal. Then you, if you get approved, then you conduct the social preparation. You prepare the people, essentially. Before, science communication was just at the end of the research. You communicate what you did in science. But now, it has to be present at the start. Mm. My analogy when I talk to people about this is that before the person would consent, and if you're a person, for example, buying a product, you need to know everything about that product you're going to buy. So therefore, when you ask for a person's consent, they need to know everything. It's full disclosure, what will happen to their sample and whatnot, how it will be stored, its future use, and so on and so forth. The entire gamut. You need to ensure transparency, accountability, and everything. So that has to happen from the start. And you develop that relationship and you prioritize their appreciation of, I'm not even going to say understanding because for people in our respective fields, it took us years to understand what we're actually doing in research. But at the very least, they would appreciate what the science is so that to some extent, their consent would be genuine, right? And given that there's full disclosure, they've learned about the entire thing about the product that, that they will, or at least the scenario that they'll be getting into when they give their sample or their consent. And then after that, when the sample has been collected, then it's pretty much technical. You extract DNA from saliva, you put it through. To date, we're doing genome sequencing where we sequence the entire three, six billion bases of humans. And you analyze the data using statistics, evolutionary genetic models. But at the same time, well, in the end, you will do research validation where you get to bring back the results and discuss it with them. And there's this process that you mentioned parachute science earlier. Mm-hmm. Parachute science would be, yeah, swoop in, then take the sample and you disappear and the partner participants don't even know that you've already published. But since mm-hmm. you started that relationship and you maintain that relationship throughout the research process, when you get the validation, essentially when you discuss the results and you've been giving updates in between, then it's an easier process for them to appreciate things and you can facilitate their approval to some extent. And then you publish. But again, this publication issue is you would have something of the technical nature mm-hmm. where the scientific community gets to evaluate it, but you do have the lay nature of it. That again, as a scientist, you need to be in this field in particular better at communicating. And I've seen some phrase that you've used in one of the guide questions. Fascinating things that ordinary non-science person should know about. I mean, when we generate the technical data, the technical graph or picture, for example, we're already thinking about how to laymanize that image. So that at the same time as we give updates, then they can already start to appreciate what the results are. And towards perhaps transparency, We want to facilitate the idea that, okay, they've seen this technical graph, but then what if they ask, why is this technical graph different from the laymanized graph? Is there something you're not telling me? It's actually a process that we like like to connect between the technical and the lay so that their appreciation will be facilitated and that there will be transparency. And then in the end, once we published, well, they've approved of the results, we published, we hopefully would strive to actually, since they're partners, to make them Mm co-authors. Meaning they start to become citizen scientists in the process. 
Again, this is perhaps we'll be striving to do this here, but this has already been done abroad. And then for the last part, we need to store their DNA data and we need to store the sample, whatever remains. And because DNA data is practically forever there already, then that relationship with the partner participants who contributed would be also for long term. Any secondary use of that data or that sample, they should know about. And they should even approve of it. Even if in the initial collection, okay, we approve that. It can be used for future research. But then any subsequent, they should be informed. Especially so if that next research will yield commercial products like drugs. We have to ensure that there is what we call access benefit sharing, that the benefits go back to the contributors and their communities especially. So yeah, that's an overview of the research process, which actually doesn't end when the project ends because you do biobank the sample and you data bank their data. And therefore, that relationship extends beyond. Okay. So yeah, it, it doesn't end. There's potential for more, for further study, further applications. Right. Mm-hmm. That was a very comprehensive explanation of the process. And I think people listening to us now have a better idea of how exactly you do this kind of research. But let's talk about the approach. Earlier, you mentioned that there are like similarities between the DNA of a person in the city in Luzon versus in Mindanao. Right. But you know, with, with indigenous groups, they kind of have their own distinct traits. So right. this kind of makes me think about something I read earlier before this interview about taking a population-based approach to research. And the flip side, I would say, which is a gene or trait or disease-based approach. And I imagine that there are cases where one is perhaps more suitable than the other, but is one of them necessarily better than the other? And why or why not? I wouldn't say one is better than the other. It's actually more of, especially here in the Philippines, no? Mm-hmm. So it's more actually more cost-effective. If you focus on a gene, say, for example, you want to focus on a disease, particular disease, you really look at individuals that have the disease, right? Yes. So you're more focused that way. And then you get to uncover, say, the underlying genetic basis. But as we discussed with the dystonia example, there happens to be unafflicted or normal individuals that have the same variant. That's the problem with just focusing on the disease or a particular trait. And you need to make sure that genetic basis is really associated with the disease or the trait. There are other studies, just like Estonia. I'll just use examples. Tibetan people who live in high altitude, they found a genetic variant that says, okay, this is the variant that's responsible for their ability to adapt at high altitude. But they found it in other populations who thrive in lowlands. So that may be that for the Tibetans, but not for the ones in the lowlands. And again, for breast cancer, there could be other variants that are operating in the Filipino population compared to Europeans. So if you just focus on the disease, you still have to carry it to the population level. So that is not cost effective. You may be able to contribute to the knowledge about the particular gene, about the disease. But if you really want to apply it, say, to the country, you have to go population. Now, the other way around is the top-down, going through the population, and with the appropriate analysis, you will be able to determine which are the actual variants 
that are operating in the Filipino population. And if you conduct further studies on those confirmed variants, then you don't need to bring it up to the population level. Now you can really go and directly target the gene. This kind of approach has been, say, eye-opening or illuminating, say, when they sequence the Neanderthal genome. Even for other, there's a genome earlier from Craig Venter, from James Watson, and so on and so forth. You will yield variants that could be unique to your population. But then at the same time, you could already compare it to the general population. And that's still that's still population-based. You can go familial. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can you can look at a, a family and look at several generations that have a particular disease, but then you need to you need to compare still to the population if that is the one responsible. It may be the variant that's responsible for that condition in that particular family, but it may be different from another family, for example. I'd like to just bring up the example of COVID. <laughs> because for COVID, the Europeans, in uh, research involving Europeans, they found that there's a particular area in their genome that can confer either COVID risk or COVID resistance. Resistance, yeah. So this particular region or area in their DNA, how did modern Europeans get it? They got it from Neanderthals. There is confirmed mating between ancient humans and, and- Archaic humans, Neanderthals, and Neanderthals passed it on to offspring. And now modern Europeans have it. But for East Asians, there's a different evolutionary story there. East Asians, including Japanese and Chinese, Mm -hmm. they have COVID resistance genes because their ancestors 25,000 years ago encountered a COVID-like virus. Uh So that's a different evolutionary history. So if you apply that in terms of questions about our Filipino a population, what's what's the scenario for us? We could have the same evolutionary history for that variant or for that area of the genome, similar to Europeans, because we have been colonized by Europeans, or since we are more closer to Chinese and Japanese who have also colonized us, we don't know. Yes, and we can so, only know if we study. Yes, the population. At the end of this uh, population base, you will have a menu of many different variants from many different areas of the genome that may be associated with, say, skin color or any other physical traits or other variants that may be associated to health and disease. You will provide your fellow local researchers a menu of different variants that they could study. So again, that's part of the cost effectiveness. You can further local scientific research. That's incredible. I read about that study on Europeans and tracing back Leading to finding evidence that there was meeting between these early, yeah, our, our, our ancestors basically, or these early uh, hominids. But that brings a question to my mind about evolution. And since we talked about it kanina, na, you know, one of the possible reasons for hesitation ay yung stigma na ah, galing sa unggoy ganyan. Which is, which is actually like an argument na naririnig ko madalas from people sure. who don't believe in evolution. Like, Kung talagang galing tayo sa unggoy, bakit, bakit may unggoy pa rin? Which is, which is wrong because it's not, we didn't descend from monkeys. We had a shared ancestor. That's a different discussion entirely. But, yes, but my, yes. my question is, I find it fascinating that we, the world just accepts medicine. The world just accepts these technological innovations, these discoveries. And we kind of take it in, in, you know, in good faith that these are based on evidence, studies. But when, when confronted with evidence related to, say, evolution, DNA studies, a lot of us are still resistant or refuse to believe 
this. But I think the process of studying, of research is the same. In your opinion, why do you think there's this kind of resistance to that knowledge? Perhaps it's probably how the field has played out since it started. Mm -hmm. Because in relation to an earlier question, the difficulty in getting people on board research, it's their perception. The conduct of evolutionary studies when it started really was hinged on racism. It facilitated racism. It facilitated discrimination, supremacism. So people are apprehensive of what actually comes out of these kinds of studies. They have a particular condition. Will they be discriminated on despite you have scientific proof of the study? So it's something that has to be discussed and perhaps repeatedly discussed and ingrained in hopefully our public, our potential participants. One thing that you've mentioned some details already, that we do come from a common ancestor. And I don't think scientists are still making efforts to find out that common ancestor. <laughs> but the fact is, if you follow that evolutionary tree, all of us are at one tip of the branch of that evolutionary tree. Hmm. But how it has been played before is that that tip still has small other mini branches and being used as justification for race, when in fact, there is no race. It's a social construct. If you mm -hmm. look at biology or genetics, as much as possible, we don't want to use or we want to take out race, race. out of scientific studies. Germany has proactively done this by taking out the term race from their basic law. And wow. this was facilitated by our colleagues in Leipzig and other parts of Germany. So since you know that from evolution, we're all in one branch, we're all humans, it's a human race, then let's not use the term race anymore. Let's not make any racial groupings or whatnot. Let's perhaps in the Philippines, let's group them according to their ethno-linguistic preference. Like say when they call them Hanunoo, because that is what culturally they call themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, we can use terms like groups or populations, but not necessarily. And unfortunately, it's a popular term locally, racist lahi in Filipino. Uh, and, yeah. and we use that often. Lahing ganito, lahing yeah. ganyan. When isang lahi natin, lahat tayo tao. Uh -oh. <laughs> and we've been talking to people about this. Therefore, if you take that out, that fear of being discriminated, being marginalized even, then perhaps their perception and acceptance of outputs from evolutionary studies would be more, I guess, perceived and received. Uh, I love how you answered this very... I, I, I hope it, it also gives our listeners a, a different perspective on why some may hold beliefs that we perceive as anti-science or anti-evidence. And it's not necessarily because, you know, you know, we like, you know, on the internet, we, it's easy to be cruel. So you see a lot of people commenting, ah, you're, you're stupid, you're tanga, because you don't believe in <laughs> evidence. Right? But it's not as simple as that. Let's not say that these people are necessarily dumb. That's a yeah. very arrogant assumption. There are many valid reasons, some of them rooted in systemic injustices in history. Kung bakit, right. Diba? These beliefs are, even in the face of evidence, hindi pa rin talaga completely nababago yung isip nila. So, siguro for people out there who are listening, who want to communicate science or become scientists, let's keep that in mind. Yung mga yes. sinabi ni Sir Fred na it's all a matter of perception, perspective. And, you know, the sooner that we can 
take that into consideration in everything we do, whether in studies or in communicating our science, the better off we'll be as one race. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> Yun. I was expecting to learn a lot because I don't know a lot about this field, but and I and I really did learn a lot and more. Like Agaya, know what you mentioned about Germany and their approach to solving the use of the word race. It's fascinating, and I want to do more reading on that. Because for me, part of how we can elevate science in the Philippines is, I think, obvious, namanto, but learning from what other countries who are a bit more you know, further along <laughs> the scientific progression are doing right now. And maybe we can adapt those practices. But yeah. I'm sure that there are a lot of curious minds out there who might have more questions for you. Or maybe, you know, if you have time to give them a bit of guidance on their path in life. Kung ganun po, what's the best way to contact you? Perhaps email? <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's fcdelphine at up.edu.ph. If you get to search Facebook, the DNA Analysis Laboratory also have a, has a Facebook page. Right. You can shoot out your questions there and uh, yeah, provide your contact details and I'll get back to you. Awesome. All right. And yeah. maybe you can share one last piece of advice for aspiring scientists out there, especially those who want to practice their craft here in the Philippines, because it's very tempting to just go abroad. <laughs> yeah, honestly, go abroad, practice your science there. But for people who who feel like, ah, kailangan ng scientists dito sa Pilipinas, what's one thing that you can tell them that could help them get closer to their goal or not lose their resolve? Actually, you you already put a damper on that. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, yeah, it, it's difficult to do science in the Philippines because you have support. We're not that rich, of course. Mm-hmm. There's different processes there. But... The main thing is really, it's kind of cheesy, but <laughs> uh, but really, now I'm lost for words. I had something that pushed me along the path, and perhaps you should find the same. It's nice to do something, engage in something that's actually bigger than you, than just your own situation. I've actually thought of three points before that I've started sharing with other people when I talk to them. Some advice for this kind of this line of work is that again, your thrust, your goal is very important, but it's actually the process, your journey. I hope that you don't get tired of learning, regardless of how that learning process is. You may find a teacher, you may find a mentor, and this is something more recently. Actually, this was mentioned to us several times by. If you know one of the winners of the Nobel laureate, Swante Pebo, for his mm. work on ancient DNA, he's the director of my host institution in Germany. He would say, we learn by doing. So it's self-learning. It initially was something off because you're in academics. You usually have a teacher or professor. But if you notice, when you have a hobby and you want to do it, you don't necessarily just find a teacher and whatnot. You dive into it. So that's the same path that I've taken. And that's what Swante Pebo did say, that we learn by doing. You have a research question, you attack it, and you you do your research. But not. And then you have the idea that it's not just knowledge, because knowledge will give you power, but character respect. So hindi lang puro academic, dapat, hindi lang puro IQ, dapat may EQ ka rin yeah. as you go along. And that perhaps the last item would be, it's not enough that we learn but we must apply. And so in my case, I was fortunate to learn all these things locally, 
her experience and abroad and was able to come back here and with the Filipino Genomes Research Program, we're, we're doing our best to apply it. And I want to say that your story is very inspiring. We often hear the phrase like, when life gives you lemons, give it, turn it into lemonade. But, you know, it's easier to say that than to actually do it. And, yes. you know, for something so remarkable as, I don't think I'm overselling it when I say that what you're doing is advancing how science is done in the Philippines. So thank you for being so generous with your skills and your expertise. And I hope that a lot of aspiring and current scientists will follow in your footsteps, you know, for the good of the Philippines. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, we hope so too. Yun. So I learned a lot from you and I'm sure that our listeners learned a lot from you too. And I would just want to say that I hope we can invite you here on the podcast again. Maybe we can talk about your other studies or get a little, you know, get a little more in-depth about genetics and genomics and just help our listeners appreciate what you do a little more. Sure, sure. Very much. Yeah, I'll make myself available. Yeah. It's awesome. So take care, stay safe, keep in touch, and talk to you again soon. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ask Theory. Follow Flip Science on Facebook, at Flip Science PH on Twitter, and at Flip Facts on Instagram. And check out our official Shopee store if you want to get copies of our books, Historiang Scientifico and Science Scramble. Stay curious. <laughs>